Well, good morning. Nice to see you all this morning. <laughs> Glad that you're here. If you are a person who is recording the football game, let me tell you who won. <laughs> Dallas lost. Dallas lost. The world stopped last night. Nah, I'm just, it's all good. We saw some church members at lunch today, and they said to me, we really thought that you would have a flat face after beating your head against the wall at the Cowboy game yesterday, so no, that's good. We're glad that you're here tonight. So let's pray as we get started. Father, we're grateful for another opportunity to gather together. What a great privilege you've given us to share life with one another. I'm grateful that you've allowed me and Teresa to be in this place with these choice servants of yours, and we thank you for... Uh, what you are doing and what you will be doing in and through this church as we move into the days ahead. We pray that you would help us always to keep the main things the main thing and that we would always seek to honor you, to follow you closely, to listen to your voice, respond in submission and obedience, and that we would be effective tools for you as we seek to connect people with your love and your life. So as we come to this time of study, we pray that you would bless it. We pray that you would give us quick minds. We pray that you would teach us something that helps us to go into the day tomorrow a little better equipped to be close followers of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so repeat after me. This is my Bible. No, just kidding. If you don't know what that was, then I'm good. that's really a good thing. So... Um, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to look in Matthew. We're going to be, okay, this morning we were in Luke 15. I said Matthew, but I mean Luke. We're going to get to Matthew, but let's start off in Luke chapter 15. That's where we were this morning. And uh, what I would like to do is a little bit of Bible awareness. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. How many of you have a translation that has a subheading there? Raise your hand if you have a translation that has a subheading right there. Okay? Uh, look at chapter 16, verse 1. Does your Bible have a subheading there? All right? So let me, let, let me you know, one of the things I learned early on is the problem with the obvious is that sometimes it's too obvious and we miss it. Okay? So let me state the obvious here. This is God's Word, right? That's correct, right? The subheadings were not inspired by God, all right? The, the, whoever put this version together, this particular version of this particular Bible, the editors put subheadings in there so that they could help us find our way through things, and it's a quicker way, okay? It's a good thing, but it's not quite the same authority that Paul has when he writes the book of Colossians, all right? You with me? You don't have to agree with that. That's just a point of reference that I come from, okay? Now, having said that, I want you to be the editor of that version, and I want you to come up with a subheading or two, all right? So, what are, what are your favorite parables? Just give me, just kind of lay it out there for us. Okay? The widow's might. All right, how would you subheading that? If you were the one putting a subheading there, what would you put? The 
What? Big things in small packages. All right, good. Somebody write these down. We might put our own Bible together. What did you say, Dick? The widow's might. All right. Good. Give your all. Okay, now they're coming at me fast. I can't hear them all. So, but that's right. What'd you, Martha, did you say something? She gave her all. She gave her all. Okay. All right, let's take a different parable. Another, somebody have a different favorite parable? Bridesmaids. The bridesmaids. All right. So how would you subheading that one? Be prepared. Be prepared. <laughs> Smart and foolish. Smart and foolish. Very good. I'm, I'm serious. Maybe we should put together some. I might, I might be getting titles for my sermons here. You'd never know. All right, let's pick a different parable. One or two more. The lost sheep, okay? How would you subheading that one? The lost is found, okay? How about 99 don't matter? Now stay with me, all right? Don't call me a heretic yet. All right, well, that's enough of us for you to get the flavor of what I'm talking about here. What is the criteria that we use to give subheadings for those things? When it comes to dealing with parables... I think that there are some pieces of information that will help us be particularly responsible with these. And so in each one of those things, I could take you the next step, and I'm not going to take the time to do it here, but I could take you the next step and say that subheading that you gave for that parable, whatever it is, now expand the subheading to a single sentence that captures what Jesus is teaching in that parable. Okay? Now, I don't want you to do it here, but it's not bad practice for you in your own personal uh, Bible study. We're, what we're doing now, and I kind of mentioned this the last two Sunday mornings, and I want to reiterate that now. What I want to do with this particular series is as we look at the parables of Jesus Christ and we come at what he's teaching in those things, I want to use our evening studies to kind of unpack that particular parable. Now, this tonight, I started to say this morning, tonight what I have to do is, and now we've got two parables on the table already, and we have to get to some basic principles about how you handle parables, okay? And so we've got a lot to go through tonight in the next hour and a half. So I'm not going to be here an hour and a half, I can tell you. An hour and a half, I'm going to be in bed probably. But uh, so there's a long way for us to go. But I wanted to train your thinking as we start tonight to understand how do we come down to draw out of these parables what Jesus really wanted us to get. And the reality is that that might be a little more difficult than what it should be. And certainly it's a little different than what historic, uh, historical parable interpretation has been. And I'll show you what I mean here in just a few moments, all right? How do we determine the full intent of Jesus' instructions through that particular parable, whichever one it happens to be? So, before we pick up the parable tonight that we talked about this morning, which one was that? 
How many of you just said prodigal sons? All right. That's right. Listen to the tape tomorrow when it comes out. You can hear. So, All right. So, first of all, here's one of the interpretive approaches. Uh, and this one goes way back. All right. Allegory. Can anybody ex- define what an allegory is? Good. I brought a definition for you. All right. <laughs> So here's a definition of allegory according to one author that I read. He said it is a work in which the characters and the events are to be understood as representing other things and symbolically expressing a deeper, often spiritual, moral, or political meaning. I would read that again, but I just saw some of you go to sleep the first time. I'm not going to lose another group of you. All right? An allegory, essentially, I'm going to put it in my terms now. An allegory, especially an allegorical interpretation of a parable, is where each element in the story really symbolizes or means or points to any number of other things. So let's do this. Go to Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. You might be familiar with this particular parable. Luke 10... Verses 30 through 37. So let's do this. Based on what we just heard, what are different elements of that story? Let's just fire them off, all right? I'm not making a list or anything, but they need to be in the story as we were just listening, all right? Different elements. The guy who was beaten. Okay, so there's a guy who got beaten. What else? There's robbers. What else? What's that? Okay. Passers-by, some that ignored him, all right? What else? A a Samaritan person who didn't ignore him. What else? A Motel 6. There's there's an inn, right? And so where there's an inn, there's an innkeeper. What else? Okay, elements. Okay, so let me just, let me jump to it, all right? You, You get the message, right? There's all kinds of elements in that. So if you want to know what nerd preachers read all the time, this is a book that uh, I got a while back that uh, is helpful in some ways. Klein Snodgrass is the author, Stories with Intent. It's a comprehensive guide to the parables. He talks about this allegorical history of parable interpretation. All right? By the way, this is an approach to interpretation that dominated church history for years and years, probably centuries is a better way to say it. All right? And so this particular parable, here's what Augustine, or as my professor, Augustine, here's what Augustine said about this and the allegory that Jesus intended with this particular deal. And I'm going to read it because it's way too much for me to memorize. So here we go. He says this, the man is Adam. Have I lost you yet? (laughs) Hang on. The man is Adam. Jerusalem is the heavenly city. Jericho is the moon, which stands for all of our mortality. The robbers are the devil and his angels who strip the man of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin. The priest and the Levite are the priesthood and the ministry of the Old Testament. The Good Samaritan is Christ. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. The oil and the wine are comfort of hope and the encouragement to work. The donkey, y'all didn't mention the donkey. 
The donkey is the incarnation. The inn is the church. The next day is after the resurrection of Christ. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Well, that's self-evident, obviously. <laughs> and, the, and the two denarii are the two commandments of love or the promise of life and that which is to come. That's allegorical interpretation of a parable. <laughs> yeah, I can just see that test question, right? I had a habit of giving it, getting in arguments with instructors. Yeah. And even though I had a 96, I'd get a D. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You get a D for attitude, right? Yeah. So, um, so here's what I want you to get from that, all right? A long part of church history... This allegorization was the flavor of the day when it came to interpreting parables. But there's a number of issues that we should have with that. Uh, And one of them is that there's no standard in that. It's almost kind of at the point of if you can dream it up, then it's probably okay. And so that's one of the things, if you go to study the parables, and remember, what I'm trying to do is give you tools for your personal Bible study toolbox. Because one of the things that I found very rewarding in my own personal life is a good study of the parables. And I think I said last week in my message that many scholars believe that Jesus told as many as 40 of them. Uh, That's a little bit tough when you start figuring out which 40 and was that really a parable or was it something else Uh, and so I think with that in mind when it comes to the parables this historical tool uh, while it might have been the flavor of the day for a very long time presented some problems for interpretation and so we have to come back we have to figure out so what is it that we're searching for when we come to study the parables what are we trying to get to Now, really, one of the quickest ways for a pastor to be really humbled is for him to ask people what they remember about what he preached, all right? (laughs) But I'm going to step into that mess here, and I'm going to ask you, what have you heard me say now for two different Sundays about the intent of the parables as far as Jesus was concerned? He tells it in a slant method. I'll come back to that. You were going to say? He tells it in in terms that people understand. Very good. All right. So when Jesus tells these stories, he intentionally picks stories that are part of their everyday life. Okay. They're engaging to to the people around him, and they're incredibly insightful. And let me just add to that now this very flagrant statement. He does that because he's teaching kingdom truth. He's bringing to his disciples, and we are part of that by extension. He's bringing out truths about life in the kingdom or truths about followers of Jesus Christ, the disciples, how their life should be recognized and identified and those kind of things. So one of the problems with the allegorization interpretation of parables is we make the parable what we want it to be. Okay, That's not really good approach to Bible study, right? Bible study is the opposite. We want to draw out what was God's intent for us in that. All right? 
So allegorization is one of those things, and it was a flavor of day for the long time. I've said that many times now. And so we're going to come to a different historical approach. It's a reaction to that. But before I get to what that approach is, uh, let, me, let me just make this statement. If you go and study the history of theology, the history of the, theolog- of the development of theology and the theological thought in the Christian church you will find that our theology and the development has largely been reactionary. A position is taken on a particular point, and that position sounds good to enough people that they gravitate to that, and over a period of time, the weaknesses of that position begin to kind of surface, and so somebody else comes along and says, well, that's not really the exact way to see that. And so there's this move to a different interpretation of that or a different point of theology. Not that it changes that one totally, it's just that it refines it. But our tendency is to overcorrect. And so here's, let me give you an example of that. I don't want to start a fight or anything like that, all right? I just surrender if it's a fight. I just don't have the energy tonight, all right? But if you go back and you remember, some of you, let me, I didn't want to say if you remember. We could go back not all that long in church history, not that far back, and the rise of the charismatic push in evangelical Christianity. Okay? And the whole move on Azusa Street in California and and as that washed across the United States and, and those kind of things. And there was this emphasis on the charisma the charismatic expression of the Christian faith, speaking in tongues, healings, those kind of things, right? Now, some of you may well have been pastors during some of the real struggles in the heydays of that because one of the things I remember as a younger guy, I was not in the ministry yet, but I can remember some of those influences as they began to bump up against the Baptist church where I attended. And people started coming in, and so many of Baptists especially, but I'm really not talking about Baptists here. I'm just talking about the church at large in America in those days. There was this reaction against that. Okay? And so then there became this overreaction I'm talking about. While there was good grounds, in my opinion, good biblical grounds to be suspicious, many churches and many pastors went way to the other extreme and essentially ignored the Holy Spirit totally as it related to how we do church and do the Christian life. The problem with ignoring the Holy Spirit totally is you can't. (laughs) Okay? Is is that a true statement? If so, why is it a true statement? Why is it a true statement? Because He indwells us. Right? Okay, so this kind of goes back to that thing that I've said many times you've heard me say. It's not enough for us to fight over Scripture and the integrity of it We have to handle Scripture well. And so this development of theology, we could just walk back and I could take you through the development of the doctrine of Christ that we hold to be settled, but not always settled in church history. The theological discussions and church councils, and Edgardo has those memorized and he could just tell us all those. I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's a nightmare is what that is. Okay. So having said that, I, I want you to hear me say when it comes to this approach to, to the development of how we approach parables, there was this 
flavor of the day, allegorization, that sooner or later people started rising up going, that's not, that can't be what Jesus intended, at least not totally. And so with that in mind, let's go to another passage here. Uh, there's this guy that shows up, his name is Ulicker. And he comes with what we believe, by the way, we're going to be in Matthew 13, you can go and turn there. But Ulicker comes up with a correction to the misuse of allegorization as a way of interpreting parables. Everybody with me so far? Okay, Ulicker comes up, and you're probably going to know what he said, you just didn't know he's the guy that said it first. You tell me. What is a Sunday school definition of a parable? Okay, I've heard it from this side of the room. Okay, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. How many meanings? How many meanings? One. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. By the way, Ulicker didn't bother telling us what a heavenly meaning is means, but that probably needs a little bit of elaboration for us. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He's the one, Ulicker is the one who came with this approach that essentially said that there is a single meaning in every parable. One. So now we go back to where I started you. You didn't know I was starting you here, but when I said what's the subheading that you would put on that parable, what your subheading said was, here's the meaning. Okay? Now, let me say, you have to be a genius to be totally wrong about something. (laughs) Ulicker was no genius. All right? There's truth in what he says. There's validity to the way he presents this. And most of us grew up with that. We understand it is a earthly, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so we dig to that and we try to figure out what that heavenly meaning is in that particular deal. So the hub, subheadings of your Bible, if you have a Bible that has those, typically default to that. Okay? They'll say, this is the parable. Okay, so now let's go back to what I preached last week. I know that's been seven days ago. The only reason I remember is because I have it in my notes. So last week, the parable, are we in Matthew 13 yet? Math, let me, I'm not, so hang on. Got to wait on the teacher, of course. Matthew chapter 13, and verses 3 through 9, which parable is this? All right, I heard soil, and I heard sower. What did I, do you might remember what I said last week? Seed. So what is, following Ulicker's approach, every parable has one meaning, what might we say is the meaning of that parable? Soil is different, okay? That's the truth. Not everyone will receive the gospel. Okay, that's the truth. Good. I didn't hear that one. Watch where you put your seeds is that one. What would you say now? Okay, good. So all of those are good, right? Now, do those, 
are, are they exclusive truth? Do they rule out each other just because that's a truth? All right, why did the... I'm going to ask you to get in somebody else's head, and that's really difficult to do, especially if you don't even know who they are. But why is the subheading in my Bible the parable of the sower? Because the sower in this particular parable is probably the least obvious. I mean, that's one of those details that you tend to just work past, right? And even when Jesus explains this parable... He doesn't say a whole lot about the sower, right? He's the one that controls where the seed goes. Okay, the thrower is. That's right. So so should we take from that that the sower is the one from whom we get the main message of this, the main lesson of this, the main truth of this? All right, so now's where I'm going to ask you to go back to last week. Do you remember how I took this parable last week? Okay, how did I take it last week? She has notes. See, this proves, this proves, okay, we have other pastors in here. This proves that you better be careful what you say because somebody might be listening, all right? All right, there you go. So the way I took it was it's not just about the sower, although he's clearly part of this. It's not just about the seed, although you don't have a parable without the seed here. But I said, say that that last part again, there are four... Okay, so how could I say that when Euliker said there's only one main teaching point out of this? And, and the answer to that is I reject his theory. Okay? I don't do that lightly, and you should know that I don't do that lightly. All right? Uh, one of the great privileges that we have, one of the reasons preachers should buy books. That's, that's a message for me. Pre- preachers should buy books. My wife says, I don't know. Preacher's wife should buy shoes too. That's another. <laughs> hey, I'm happy to buy shoes. Wow. Let's pray and go home. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I think that's a good point, right? And that is that application, typically when you come to Scripture, right? When we come to any other passage of Scripture, one of the things we have to do is figure out what did the author intend here? I've said it this way, especially. Was it last summer when I did the seven churches of Revelation? And one of, the, one of the fundamental things from the very beginning I said was, Scripture is written by an individual at a particular point in time to a group of people at a particular point in time with a particular message. And the interpreter, that's us, has to get that context right. We have, if we don't start with the right context then we're liable and likely to end up with any number of bad translations. So one of the tasks, one of the key tasks of an interpreter of Scripture is to figure out, what did he say in the first place? What did he mean? Okay, and when we come to that, there are multiple applications. That's one of the reasons we can say the Holy Spirit enlivens His Word because you can hear something from what Paul wrote to the Colossian church And you take one thing away from it, and I take another thing, and both of those turn our lives upside down for the glory of Christ, right? So the application is one thing. But when it comes to understanding the parable itself, I have said last week and this week that as we come to that parable, there's more likely to be more than just one intent or one point of truth, if you will.
So with that in mind, let me see if I can justify that for you before you go home so that you don't think I'm a heretic, okay? Context is crucial. We just got through talking about that. And here's one of the things that comes back to what we said earlier. Jesus did not tell these parables in a vacuum. It's not like Jesus was just sitting around a campfire and thought, I think I'll tell a story about a widow and her mite. Jesus tells these in a very true context, real things going on. Remember, his intent is to communicate truth about the kingdom of God. He spoke into a group of people, his disciples, who were raised in a system that was dominated by the Old Testament. They had brought their way and brought, they had been brought forward and in the first century, Roman occupation, the children of God were not the uh, kings of the universe like they thought they should be. And Jesus steps into that with the good news, the life, okay, now I'm back to our vision statement, the love and the life that God gave through him. And his teaching to his disciples was, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. I'll say that a different way. Here's what God designed life to be. And so with that, these parables then became stories from the real world that opened the door for them to understand things that they didn't know. And so Jesus says there was a sower. And they very likely is walking through the countryside. Don't know that, but very likely is walking through the countryside. They come across a guy and he's out there throwing seed. Not like we plant today, they're just throwing seed. And by definition, when he throws the seed, some of it goes into rocky ground and some of it goes into good ground, etc., etc. Okay? So we have to get the context. So let me go back to this morning's parable. And I, I went there this morning. It was just a, in the second service. I know it did. I think it did in the first service too. What was the context of the parable of the prodigal sons? Why did Jesus tell that story? There was absolutely no room for those people in the kingdom, right? That's what they thought. So Jesus tells this parable. Now, I'm going to take you to a different guy now, a different name for this. Well, let me, before I do that. So if I was just to say there's one truth, this following Euliker, right? I don't think he's all wrong, all right? Don't misunderstand that part of it. I just don't think he's as comprehensive as he needs to be, okay? Because there are some parables that only have one main point. I'll talk about that in just a second. But if I were to reduce the parable of the prodigal sons to one single point, this is what I would say it is. Every prodigal needs a father. Okay, Now, in the second service, I know I said that better than I did in the first service. Okay, You don't know, but preachers who had teach or preach at two different services at the same church every day get a mulligan the second time. You get to fix what you did wrong the first time, right? And so in this particular case, I didn't say that as well in the first service as I wanted to. So I came back to at least push the point that every prodigal needs a father. We need the love of somebody like God loves us that extends grace when all we have to offer is selfishness. Okay? Now, I think that's part of, maybe one of, the kingdom truths that Jesus is teaching. The context 
is the religious leaders who weren't willing to do that. But the slant on that is that Jesus tells a story that absolutely fillets them as it relates to the way they viewed sinners. And he writes this, and, or he tells this in such a way that he casts a wide net, and essentially all of us are prodigals. Did you hear me say that today? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, so having said that, let's jump because I'm just about out of time. The third method to interpreting parables is by a guy, a New Testament scholar named Craig Blomberg. And uh, he says this, and I think he's on to something. His position is that every parable has a point for each of the main characters. Okay? So in the parable of the sower, I have to make myself say it that way. Because I think it's really the parable of the soils, right? Because there's four different kinds of soil. And so, as you heard me preach it last week, I talked about each one of those kinds of soil. And before I talked about the soil itself, I gave the application of what that looks like. The reason I did that is because I knew that when I said the soil, people would kind of, oh, I've heard that before. Okay? So, Blomberg says that each parable has a point that it's teaching, a kingdom truth that Jesus is teaching for each of the main characters. Now, some parables only have one main character. The widow's mite would be one of those, right? So that would mean there's probably one main truth that we draw from that. Some parables have two points. And then he gets fancy on us because he's a professor. And he says when it comes to three-point parables, there are simple parables and complex parables. And so as we work our way through the sermon series and what we're doing in here on Sunday nights, I want you to listen for that as we draw points, as I draw points from that for the sermons and we come in here and talk about where that comes from. So, the one from today, all right, the parable of the prodigal, what? Sons. How many characters are in that parable? Who are they and what might be the points that we draw from them? There's two sons and a father, so let's take son number one. That's the younger son, right? What point might we draw from that? What truth might Jesus be trying to teach from that individual? Huh? To return home, okay? Not a, that's not a bad lesson to take, right? If you're a prodigal, that's the one you want. Yes, ma'am. That's a good truth, right? Yeah, and see, that's the one that hits those Pharisees also, right? You think, I mean, you're the, you're the proper prodigal. You don't see yourself as a prodigal because you do all the proper things. But there's still that element of selfishness there. They didn't think that that was them. Matter of fact, everybody else is the one that had the problem. Okay, good. Third, third individual, yes. Okay, by the father, right? In some ways that make, from a, from a practical side, this is Jesus' slant, right? It makes no sense for the father to give up all of the inheritance before it's time. And the second son didn't even ask for it. I, I highlighted that, I think, in both services today. Notice that he gave, because one asked for it, 
erroneously and audaciously, he still gave it to both of them. Why is that? What does that tell us about God and his love for us? Okay? It's, it's an extravagant love. All right? That's right. Well said. So let me, let me amplify that in a little different way, but I'm pulling his point. Um, I think that one of the things we get from the Father here, the, the, the kingdom principles here, is that as God's people, we ought never begrudge even the most wicked person who responds to God's love. Now, let me suggest that it's a lot easier to sit in a Bible study and say, that's right, preacher, than it is in real life. I had an experience. Uh, I'll close with this. I think I'm okay to close. Well, I have one other thing real quickly, but I uh, had an experience in the church I served in another place. won't tell you where it was. was not here. I'll tell you that. And uh, through the ministry of some people uh, that I was at least associated with, uh, we, we saw this college-age kid come to trust Christ as a Savior and come to be involved in that particular point of ministry that I was with. The deal is that this guy was the town drug king in high school. And he had had a life situation, uh, rolled his car to be exact, and as his car was rolling, he was partially ejected through the sunroof, and so it didn't roll over on him, but he had some head injuries because of that, and his, his life was just a wreck, right? He was all there, but he had some lingering health issues because of that. Uh, but he got genuinely saved. You know what I mean by that? I mean, as much as one person can know that, uh, he was different, and so he came and he started becoming part of that particular area of ministry. And some of the people in that church went to him and said, you really can't be here. And it was based on his previous lifestyle. Okay? Nothing, you know, no abuse, no sexual abuse of anybody, no, no child abuse, nothing like that. He, he was a drug guy, a druggie. And so I watched as some of the Christians in that particular church drew a line and said, you're too bad to be here. I wonder how Jesus would have responded in that situation. He might have told a parable like the prodigal sons, I suppose, because that's pretty much what the religious leaders were doing, right? You're too bad. You're prostitutes and you're this and you just can't be here because, well, just because. So I think the parable comes at us and at least that one part of it, God, we should never begrudge someone who is responding to God's offer of love. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be stupid about that. That doesn't, I mean, you know, I say to our staff a lot, you know, if in doubt, trust Sometimes you don't doubt. Sometimes you know there's a reason not to trust a situation or something like that. We don't, we're not charged to be blind and stupid, but we are charged to extend his love. And we have to figure out what that looks like. So, last question. What's the slant of this parable that we used this morning? 
How is it that Jesus came around and got in from the flank? So that first way you just described is what I called this morning going mom on them, right? (laughs) Hitting them between the eyes. Here's the truth. And they would have rejected that because that wasn't their issue, right? So Jesus comes in from the side. How would, if you were one of the scribes and Pharisees in that situation, how would you have heard this parable? That's something for you to think about this week, all right? Let's pray. We'll let you go. Thank you for being here. Edgardo, pray us out, please, sir.